This is Nerve Radio. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Podcast. Your one-stop shop for all your sporting news and discussion. Hello and a welcome back to the podcast. As always, Toby Foster joins myself, Sam Machen, to digest and react to all the latest sporting news. This week, we are joined by our friend and F1 fanatic, Josh Stepien. How are we doing, boys? All good, thank you. Very well. As I say, he's an F1 fanatic, old Josh. We're going to start off with the F1. Look at the Golf Players Championship that's just gone this weekend. So controversy with the USV glove. Preview the boxing for the weekend and a little bit of darts news as well. So let's kick it off. F1 season starts soon, Josh. But let's start with the qualifying. Hamilton has come out and said from this, well, he basically sounds fearful of Red Bull, doesn't he? He does. He sounds pretty much like Red Bull are going to be fierce contenders for the constructors this year. Um, I'm not too sure if he feels like Max is going to be able to pinch him to the drivers, but maybe that Max and Checo combination together might pinch him and Valtteri um, to the constructors more so. That's sort of the impression I got. Yeah, Red Bull, of course, being fronted by Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez with Lewis Hamilton, of course, on Mercedes with Bottas once again. How do you see this one going, Toby? Because they're obviously the main two contenders for the F1 season. We'll talk about some of the newcomers in Aston Martin in a sec, but how do you see that battle panning out? Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we always, uh, I think, like to try to judge things on testing, but often that doesn't necessarily give us a big picture. I think testing is a lot more useful for the teams than it is for the fans and the watchers, perhaps. There are a lot of commentators who are trying to tout this up, just as you have, actually, as the the long-awaited battle between Red Bull and Mercedes, where they've both got competitive cars and, and gunning for the title. Um, obviously, Verstappen has been the, the main challenger outside of Mercedes uh, to their dominance anyway over the past couple of seasons. But I think this is really one where we will have to wait and see. And we won't know until they line up for the first race of the season or perhaps in qualifying beforehand uh, who has got the most competitive car and whether this really is going to be the first uh, season in a long while now that we get a truly competitive world championship. Yeah, Hamilton's still the favourite at uh, 7 to 11 and for staff at 9 to 2 with their uh, fellow drivers on their teams just making up the top four. Let's talk on Mercedes. It seems that their car is not as fast. Do you think that's just one of these small niggles that's come out of testing that's going to make any difference over the season, Josh? This happens sort of every year with Mercedes in testing. Uh, to use the phrase, sandbagging would be light. So typically what they do, they, they run a slower car, a slower setup in testing to sort of give false hope and false information to the other teams. Typically happens every year. Um, it's just something they do. And, you know, it, it, we've seen Mercedes dominance for the last, you know, seven, six, seven years. So I, w- I wouldn't be too concerned with their, with their testing pace at the moment. Like Toby was saying, it's difficult to tell on testing alone who's going to be up there at the top. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't be too concerned about their pace, personally. I mean, I think, with my very limited F1 knowledge, that it's just going to be an easy win for Hamilton again. He just seems a class above the rest. Would that be your guess, or are you picking someone else to come along and win the title? 
uh, I think it's got to be Lewis still. I think regardless of what Max and what Red Bull can do, that Mercedes engine and power unit that they've got, along with Lewis's undoubtable talent, I think it is, you know, domination again for Lewis. I think where you're looking at is Valtteri coming second again this year might be, you know, the point of concern for Mercedes and maybe the constructors, as I said earlier. But I think Lewis winning that driver's title is is pretty sealed up in my mind before the before the first race. There's been some questions about Bottas, hasn't there, Josh, about whether he's um, got the sort of nous to carry on in that number two seat at Mercedes. You know, he's, he's had some difficult races, uh, particularly last season. It didn't go particularly well for him. Um, and he has been given this extra chance by Mercedes. He is going to be um, their number two driver for the next season. Do you think he's a little bit lucky to get that or do you think he deserved that extra chance? I think in some ways he deserved the chance. You know, for Mercedes, he's he's the perfect driver. Lewis is obviously the number one driver. Everybody knows that. And he's a perfect backup to Lewis. He'll let him overtake um, on the final lap for a win. He'll let him get the cleaner air in qualifying. He plays to Lewis's strengths better. So if Mercedes' idea of winning is getting Lewis out of front, trying to win every every race and you know, Valtteri just picking up a few points so that the constructors is sealed up. I think that's that's sort of what their mind is. Whereas if they went, you know, and got someone like Checo, uh, Sergio Perez in the in the drivers' market during silly season, you know, they might have had some conflict that we saw with like back to Lewis and Nico Rosberg. You know, Checo is clearly a driver that wants to fight for the for the title now. We can see that by him going to Red Bull. So maybe if they got someone like that in, it would be too much competition. Not necessarily that Lewis couldn't handle that, but something that Mercedes might not have wanted. I think the difficulty now is that Hamilton, while he's still at the top of the game, he, you know, 36 years of age, he is coming towards the end of his career in Formula One. And perhaps we know he's, he's just signed on for one extra year um, in his latest contract renewal. There has been no big contract as of just the one year. So perhaps looking towards the end of his career and they need to perhaps find a successor for him if they're going to continue dominating at the top. And I'm just wondering, perhaps the time was now or, or maybe not to move somebody new into that position in at the number two seat and have a, a ready successor, if you like, to come and take over from him. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because obviously we're, the, the thought is that Lewis is going to, you know, surpass Michael in world titles as he did last year surpassing him in wins and podiums and you know he's going to be surpassing him on on the world title if he wins this year so he'll be you know undoubtedly the best Formula One driver in terms of stats so is he just getting that extra one year to do that and then leaving or is he planning on seeing one year see what the regulations are coming into the 2022 season and see where he's at then you know, he does a lot of stuff outside of Formula One. You know, he does a lot of um, fashion uh, designing and uh, he has loads of other projects outside of Formula One. So does he want to go and focus on that for longevity in his career? You know, keeping some sort of extra excitement going outside of the sport? Or is he, you know, just trying to see what the regulations are? Because clearly if you've won, you know, seven world titles and you've won the last, you know, six out of seven years, 
you're thinking, well, do I want to lose that? Do I want to start getting beaten by, you know, these kids in Max Verstappen? Or, you know, if George Russell comes into the team, do you, do you want that extra pressure? Or do you want to just leave as, you know, the greatest of all time, retired on a win? This is probably what I think is going through his head anyway. And for Mercedes, it, it might have been the right time to bring George Russell in. We saw him last year getting a couple races um, when, you know, because of COVID and everything. So he did get a taste of a session there. But I think one more year at Williams for Russell to learn his craft w- wouldn't be a bad thing at all. Yeah, and also just to take it back to that contract with Hamilton, is it a case of him play- playing it short term in terms of the length to see where he can get the most money in the future? And he Definitely, you know, he's put Mercedes under a bit of pressure earlier, like later in the season, waiting to sign that contract to see if there was a better, off- better offer coming in from Mercedes. I wouldn't have said that he was looking anywhere else necessarily. Um, just because of them world titles. I think he wants to win as well, doesn't he? He doesn't just want to rake in the cash. And even if a team came in who perhaps were a backmarking team, um, who were prepared to offer him more than Mercedes are, I'm not entirely sure that he would take it because I, I don't think he'd enjoy just driving around in 16th place or whatever. You know, he, he wants to be competing and he wants to mm. win, particularly at this stage of his career and with all that he's done behind him. It's a very valid point there. He's definitely one of those that's a born winner that wants to do the best and reach the top peaks. But spoke about George Russell there. I want to just talk about him and Mick Schumacher, both stepping up uh, from the Formula 2 in recent years. How do you think, How do you see their seasons going, Josh? It's unfortunate for Russell, I have to be honest. You know, Williams are not going to be able to give him the car. To, you know, it'd be a, in a, for me, it'd be amazing if he can get a point this season. Um, so in terms of what he can do, nothing. I think learn his craft and start looking at how, how Williams are developing a car and, you know, something he can take into his future career. You know, we know recently that a lot of drivers have influence on what happens to the car's development and how it's, you know, how it's going to drive on track. So I think that's the most important thing for him to learn at the moment and not get so hung up on points because I don't think Williams are going to be able to offer him a car that he can compete, you know, let alone, I don't even think he'll be able to get the point. So that's a clear, you know, thing that has to go through his mind is what he can take out of the bad situation. And with Mick Schumacher, I think more of the same, you know, has have been a, well, they've been a, they've been a poor team for the last few years now, a couple of years. And it's, more like I say more of the same he's just got to learn that craft this is his first this is his rookie year you know we've seen Norris step up in recent years Norris Albon and Russell and they've all taken like a fish to water really um as a case there for Albon but I think he has to just do the same learn as much as he can and not focus on results as much I mean there's just some interesting teams out there Ferrari you got Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz and McLaren, Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo, do any of those or perhaps any of the other teams catch your eye as perhaps doing well this year? I think McLaren is, is again, you know, fighting for that third uh, place in that constructors, especially bringing Danny Rick into the team. You know, he's got so much experience. And when he, you know, when he was a bit younger at Red Bull, he was tagged as the next world champion and he was going to win, you know, at least one championship. And unfortunately, it's not worked out for him. But I think he brings so much quality and experience to the team. 
someone like Norris can learn so much of, of him. You know, they've got a fairly good friendship as it as is. You see them bantering about in the in the paddocks. So I think third place for them is where they're looking. I don't, I can't see them reaching into Red Bull, and I can't see uh, anyone else really competing for that third space as much as them. So you mentioned uh, Ferrari just before. Former driver Sebastian Vettel has gone on to the new look racing point team as they uh, are rebranded under Aston Martin with alongside Lance Stroll. It's the first time since 1960 that Aston Martin have entered a car into Formula One. Are you excited for this, first of all, Josh? Because I am. I love anything Aston Martin. Yeah, it's good to see Aston Martin back in the sport, you know, especially with that racing point outfit as they were known last year. They had a great car, really. You know, Mercedes point two, as it was known. Um, it was it was a great car, and I think they've got a real chance to compete. And it's great for British racing. You know, you got you got McLaren, Williams, and Aston Martin in there now, and I think it's it's great news for the sport, to be honest. How do you see them faring as a team with uh, Lance Stroll, who I think is only 23 years old himself and obviously the experience of Vettel? Yeah, I think I think they're going to fare pretty well this year. They had, like I mentioned, they had a great car last year. So if they can, they've kept a similar design this year. Um, and with that experience of Vettel, you know, he was out of favour last year at Ferrari with Leclerc coming in. You know, it's fair enough. But now Lance Stroll... We've seen he has the ability to pick up points. He got a podium last year. He picked up quite a lot of points. He got a win in his race, in his first race, um, his first win of his career. So I think they have the ability. I can't. I still can't see him reaching McLaren, but I think fourth in the constructors is sort of where they're, where they're looking to settle. But they will be pushing for that third place for sure. Kind of mentioned it with Lewis Hamilton in terms of there's going to be a point where he's either going to have to decide to stay in the sport and leave on a high or grind out to let teams further down. We're seeing that with Vettel. Do you, is there perhaps an argument that he should have called it a day by now? Um, I think I see similarities in Vettel to Raikkonen, if I'm honest. You know, former world champion, was at Ferrari, didn't do so well because of the Ferrari setup. And now moved on to different teams. I can see Vettel going the same way. He has clearly has a love for the sport, and you know, clearly, you have to look at it as a you know you move to another team for. I don't want to say this, but sort of a retirement fund. You go there, you get your money while you're still in the sport you love, surrounded by good people. So I think he'll be able to compete there more as well as um, compared to Ferrari. I think it's definitely a step up for this year at least. I agree with uh, Josh's point, but I, I think the difference perhaps is, obviously Kimi Raikkonen is well known for his reserved, quiet personality. Uh, Sebastian Vettel, quite the opposite, in that he's a very fiery character. Um, we saw he didn't necessarily react too well at Ferrari when things weren't going his way. Um, and perhaps that will be the case as well at Team Lower Down. So it'll just be interesting to see if his sort of temperament, he can maintain sort of calmness, uh, even if things don't go his way, which often happens for the teams lower down the field. Uh, and just while we're on the subject of F1, there's been the passing of a great. Yes, the commentator Murray Walker, uh, who commentated on F1 between 1976 and 2001. Uh, has passed away at the age of 97. 
uh, a real legend of the sport. Uh, and I think a lot of people of perhaps two generations or even three generations who, who grew up watching the sport and uh, became fans of the sport will associate Murray Walker's voice with many classic moments. Uh, and I think he's one of only four men to have commentated on the sport since uh, 1976. It was Murray Walker, succeeded by James Allen, then Jonathan Ledgard for a bit on the BBC, and now obviously David Croft, the very excitable David Croft on Sky. So those four have had the privilege of, of calling the races um, uh, since 40, what would that be, 45 years ago. Um, and it's a, it's a great shame for a lot of people. I think this this news really did touch a lot of people uh, when it um, when it emerged this week. Uh, but yes, Murray Walker, R.I.P. And I'm sure a lot of fans will be very thankful for the many memories and iconic moments uh, that he voiced in the sport. That, that concludes the F1 segment there, Josh. You you love your F1, but almost as much, if not more, you love your golf it's been the golf players championship this week and we saw the world number three justin thomas win it by one stroke for his uh 14th pga tour title finished 14 under par just one ahead of lee westwood who had a fantastic tournament until until he kind of lost it his way towards the end what was your immediate reaction to this one josh yeah it, it was great to see westwood up there um uh, I personally really love Westwood. I think he's a great golfer. It's just a shame on the last day, you know, did, didn't break even. So he hit even par, didn't get any any shots, didn't drop any shots. So it would have been good if he could have could have got up there, you know, representing, you know, the English uh, players out there on tour. But it was, you know, it was a crazy championship with, you know, Garcia. He was seven under the first day and then finished eight under. Didn't, didn't finish it off as well as he started. But overall, was was a fairly interesting championship. Toby, it's a sport you're championing. Well, we selected our sports, didn't we? That we um, were going to find out more about, and mine was golf. Um, just looking at some of Lee Westwood's comments, he, he blamed his age for this. He said, "I hate to say it, but age is catching up with me." He's he's 47 years of age, and he said, uh, "On Saturday, I felt like my legs were just getting a bit tired and weak." On Sunday, um, sorry, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't feel like I had my legs under me. I was hitting shots I don't usually hit, uh, but still a, a really good performance. Thirteen under, you know, you, you can't argue uh, with that not being a fantastic performance. But just uh, one too good in Justin Thomas, uh, who now goes up to number two in the world. Uh, another Englishman who is often seen competing well in these in big events. Paul Casey. Uh, 11 under par is right there and Bryson DeChambeau who we talked a bit about last week um, was 12 under so he was right there as well so uh, not too many surprises a lot of the major uh, names at the top of the pile Uh, but yeah another big uh, win for Justin Thomas. Bryson DeChambeau likes to have a little trickle to up his sleeve we mentioned last week how they had to change the out of bounds on the last hole for the Golf Players Championship, so he hinted that at going across the water. But he's eyeing up some, another trick, if I'll call it that, Josh, with the balls going forward. The idea with the balls is the PGA and, you know, the everybody surrounding golf are looking at the balls and how far the balls are going. So he's whacking the ball, you know, he's a, he's a big boy and he's whacking the ball 360 yards before it even drops. And for... 
in the game, you know, in the professional game, that's a major, major advantage. Not saying that it's his fault and, you know, not blaming him in any way, but they're, they're looking into the ball technology and also the club technology and how far the balls uh, are travelling. So, you know, for the average golfer, you know, anyone over sort of a, a 10 handicap or, or even a five handicap, the ball's not going very far. So, they're, as Rory mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they're looking at it at just the, the 0.1% of players, and that's the professionals, that, you know, he's gaining this massive advantage. But then if you change the ball or change the drivers or change the clubs, change all the technology around it, the players that are going to suffer is the other 99.9% of players, you know, the people that are casual golfers and they want to hit the ball for, for but, you know, don't quite have the ability. The ball is there to help them. So if they're changing that, they're changing the whole rule of golf. And on McElroy, he actually said, you know, he's not been playing very well. And, you know, that's partly down to Bryson. So he is changing the game. Bryson DeChambeau is changing the game of golf. You know, McElroy wanted to change his swing to get that extra advantage because he's losing so much um, yardage compared to Bryson. And that's why his swing's been, you know, a bit messed up. He's trying different things. It's not quite working out. And now he's trying to revert back. So that's sort of why, why McElroy's in a bit, bit through the mud at the moment. Just on the golf, um, we've got the Masters coming up. In just a couple of weeks' time, that starts on Monday, the fifth of April. Have you got a selection for that one, Josh? Is there anyone that you fancy at the moment who's who's going well? It's got to be the world number one, doesn't it? Oh, I think you know he's absolutely flying, Dustin Johnson. He's he's been playing incredibly well for the last you know year, eighteen months, and I think he's got to be my pick. I think if I was to try and pick an outsider. It'd be it'd be very difficult, but. Uh, but John Rahm, how do you fancy his chances? Yeah, well, I mean, any it's the Masters. Anybody's got a chance. Yeah, you know, it's, the, it's the biggest competition in the world. Um, in terms of golf, you know, it's the biggest major for me, and you know, putting on that green jacket means a lot to a lot to a lot of people. So I think John Rahm's been playing really well. He's been probably playing the best he's played for for a while recently. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's competitive field at the moment. Like you said, there's how many players at the, at the um, TPC playing, hitting the um, 10 under. It's, it's great to see. There's a lot of competition. But for me, I think Dustin Johnson is going to pinch it. I mean, you mentioned Maury McIlroy, just to take it back, being stuck in the mud. He missed the first cut at the Golf Players' Championship. Is, you alluded to it. Is, do you put that down to him trying to change his tactics uh, around how the game's evolving and he just can't get settled or is he just not the player that he once was, even though he's still fairly young? I, I think it's, you know, it's down to a, a number of things. It could be the pressure that he's facing because he's not playing well. And, you know, he's, he has tried to change that swing. He's not, he's been quite open about it. Actually, most players wouldn't be. But he's been quite open to the fact that, you know, he's tried to change his swing to gain them extra yardage, yardages. And it's, it's fair enough, you know, if you're hit only striking the ball, you know, 300 yards and Bryson's there whacking it 400 odd yards, you know, you're losing a lot of shots over the course of a, a three-day championship. So I think that is sort of where he's going wrong or where he went wrong. If he pulled it off, it would have been incredible, but I think it was a risk and it's not paid off for him. And Johnson and uh, was tied for 48 for that one. He should pick for the Masters. He didn't really get going at the Players' Championship by his levels, has he? Especially for someone that's vowed to stay as number one the whole year. 
Yeah, but the the tricky thing about golf is, you know, these the player championships, it doesn't mean it's not the biggest competition in the world. And, um, you know, if you look at someone like Brooks Kepka, who says, you know, he doesn't train for, you know, the little championships, he only trains for the Masters. And when you see him playing golf, they're the only times he's playing golf, sacked his coach. And I think that sort of mentality is spread across a lot of the a lot of the pros. I can't remember who exactly it was that said it, but somebody, one of the journalists asked the golfer, why do you turn up to these uh, events if you don't think you're going to win? He said, well, they pay, pay a lot of money for 20th. So I think it's a fair point that you show enough and you, you're earning money. You know, at the end of the day, it's their, it's their living. So he's turned up to these little ones, not putting in too much effort and ready for the Masters is my pick. Brilliant. So we go from swinging balls on the green to swinging punches in the boxing. Now we've got some big name fights nice coming up this Saturday with Lawrence Acoli fighting Christoph Glowacki on the headline for the card for the WBO title cruise in the cruiserweight division. Lawrence Acoli, clear favourite on this. The 15-0 fighter, nicknamed the Source, has the Brit in the Euro title. He's uh, going on the line for a third and to be honest it doesn't look like it's going to go any way other than him winning I'm going for he's got the power behind him his trainer Shane McGuigan said he's one of the in fact he said he is the heaviest hitter that he's ever trained I'm going to go for a a third fourth round knockout in that one Uh, and then a former podcast guest in Chris Billum-Smith will also be fighting on that card. He was originally supposed to be fighting Dion Juma. He has had to call out and he will be fighting uh, for the vacant WBA Continental Cruiserweight belt against Vasil Dukar. Again, not a name that really grabs the limelight and Chris Bill and Smith very much on the up, you'd expect. Another easy, pretty decent fight by him. He's got the big heavy hitter for the Cruiserweight division. Same for Coley and you'd expect another reason. I'm, I'm going to go for probably round four to six on that one. And another Bournemouth local as well. Lee Cutler fighting Bradley Ray is a fight to look out seven to O on that card. Let's stick with the fighting now, but turn our hand to USC. I can involve you both a little bit more here, especially Josh, who has a sports therapy background. So in some controversy about the glove in USC after Vegas 21 in the headline fight between Leon Edwards and Bella Mohammed. Um, we, we see the fight waved off as a no contest after Mohammed was caught in the eye of an eye poke from Leon Edwards. First of all, let's just talk about your opinions from that medical sporting background, Josh, on, on the USC glove. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it, really? I think the whole UFC community at the moment is sort of scratching their heads at a solution. Um, do you start to cover the fingers or what what sort of way do you go about it? it I did see on Dana White's Twitter, actually, a, a freeze frame of the of the eye poke and it sort of goes into his eye, under his eyelid, the finger. So it's not a, not a pleasant one whatsoever. And you can see why it's swollen up so much. The eye is quite a sensitive organ, you know, and I think getting poked, if you're, you know, sparring, you you never hear a sparring practices really ending with um, eye pokes because, you know, they're a bit more careful. But when you get into the ring, it's sort of almost used as a weapon for a lot of fighters, you know, them dirty fighters. 
they're leaving their fingers out or they're spraying their fingers as they're going for a little jab that they know they're not going to reach. You know, if they're just out of their reach, they spray their fingers out, hoping to catch it, catch it. And I think something's got to change. There's been too many eye posts, too many no contests or losses because of it, uh, disqualifications. And I think something's got to change. I don't know whether that you cover the, the whole hand or if you just cover the tips of the fingers. I don't know what they're going to do with it. The, the problem is you need the fingers exposed for for grappling. Um, but the problem with the current USC glove is that it leaves the hand extended. There's been some talented ideas of uh, a glove that bends the hand. Do, do you think that would be the way forward to kind of keep the finger in a bit more so you can still grapple, but at the same time, you'd hope it reduce injury? I mean, to me, it doesn't seem like that would do too much. No, I, I'd agree with you. Um, I couldn't see that doing doing too much. And like you say, the grappling aspect is for most fighters their whole fight. You know, a lot a lot of UFC fighters won't uh, stand up and trade punches. Um, they'll get straight to the floor and start grappling with their uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or whatever it is they're specialising in. So I think there has to be a happy medium between those that are wanting to strike and those that are grappling. I think you have to involve both sets of fighters um, that like the special special areas and combine sort of a, a happy medium for them. And Toby, just to weigh you in on this, there's been some arguments that it was just uh, down to the fault of the uh, of, of Lee and Edwards and as much as it is an accident that fighters perhaps need to work a bit harder to make sure they're not doing that kind of thing. But you kind of feel in the spur of the moment that that's not what's on the front of their mind. Oh, well, you'd like to hope not, wouldn't you? Um, but this is something perhaps that there's parallels you could draw with boxing as well. And there's been suggestions perhaps uh, made that certain leading boxers, may, there may be elements of um, not necessarily cheating involved, but competitive advantages involved uh, by tampering with gloves or varying uh, gloves. Yeah, and I'm going to go for another throwing segue now. So from throwing punches to throwing darts, I've probably used that one before. Yes, it's been the Super Series, the second Super Series, I should say, uh, this week that that has got underway. And yesterday was the first of those um, Players' Championship events involving the 128 Tour card holders. Although the big absentee for this set of Super Series was... Michael Van Gerwen, he chose not to attend. Um, the excuse given was travel restrictions or travel difficulties, uh, but he has not been in the best of form, as has been discussed on many occasions on the podcast. <laughs> um, and perhaps this is him deciding to take some time out and recuperate um, I say recuperate as if he's been ill. He hasn't been ill, but uh, perhaps just recuperate from the busy schedule that he's had uh, as far as darts is concerned over the past couple of months, work on his game, spend some time with his family and his uh, very young children. He's had a a baby over the last few months. So I think perhaps he's just feeling, obviously his priorities are different uh, now as a father, especially, uh, and perhaps just taking some time as well um, rather than compete in these events. But we have seen some um, interesting games already. Lisa Ashton, the uh, only uh, lady competitor in the field, um, had a fantastic 
day yesterday and reached the last 16. Uh, and she beat Nathan Aspinall, uh, Aaron Beanie, and the former two-time world champ Adrian Lewis to get there. She just threw some, uh, I saw somebody describe it as darts from the gods, uh, was what she threw on Twitter yesterday. Uh, and in the final, uh, Brendan Dolan claimed the title in an 8-6 victory over Michael Smith. Again, losing another final, Michael Smith, no change there. And a uh, friend of the podcast, Scott Mitchell, also had a superb day and reached the quarterfinals uh, with a, a run of great results before losing to the eventual winner, Brendan Dolan. So some captivating contests yesterday in the darts. And that was the first of four Super Series events which are taking place. The second one's taking place uh, today. Uh, so we'll see who wins that one. And we'll, we'll have another update on next week's podcast. But as uh, I think we're going to preview on a future podcast, all eyes now are on the Premier League of darts, which starts very soon. Yeah, absolutely. We'll cover that another time. Just to round up with the dart stare, we've seen Scott Mitchell ease into life in the PDC, and I've just got a feeling that sooner or later he's going to pick up a win, whether it's on one of these series events on one of the days or something a bit bigger. I totally agree, Sam. I think he's on course now. He's looking at danger in all these events um, that he competes in, and he's just banging form. He's, he's one of the players to beat in these um, in these tournaments and, and moving up the rankings quite quickly. So hopefully we'll see Scott in a final before long and uh, competing uh, back at the very highest level in those tournaments. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll round off with a reaction of Cheltenham next week, along with the Six Nations, because to be honest, there's not too much more to cover other than Italy is still horrendous and Wales look like they're going to win the Grand Slam if they beat France. So with that, we'll move into the first section. The sporting question. Yes, and this week I took inspiration from the news that we heard that Zlatan Ibrahimovic is coming out of retirement, international retirement, at the age of 39 um, to rejoin the the Sweden squad. And he's going to be competing uh, with them. I think he's going to be at the Euros uh, this summer and he's going to be competing in the qualifiers later on this month as well. You know, a legendary player and still competing at the highest level at the age of 39. Got me thinking about um, some of the oldest people to achieve certain things. So I've got three questions here, one for each of you and then uh, one just generally. But uh, I'll ask Josh the F1 question. I think that makes sense. And the question is... Louis Chiron was the oldest ever driver to start an F1 race back in the 1955 Monaco Grand Prix. But how old was he? Was he 45, 50 or 55, Josh? I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to say he was 50. He was 55, which oh, I I know oh, I couldn't believe um, that somebody of that age was still competing in F1, but I suppose 1955, it was different times then, different cars. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, still very impressive. Louis Chiron, that was. And your one, Sam, I know you've done well on the football questions recently, so I thought I'd give you another one in, in that vein. It. And it is, who is the oldest footballer currently competing in the Premier League? Is it Willy Caballero, Phil Jagielka or Wes Morgan? I think it's definitely between 
this is probably going to show me out to be wrong. I think it's definitely between uh, the last two there for me. Hmm. Oh, I honestly don't know. I'm trying to think actually if it could be Cavalera, but I don't think it is. I'm going to go Phil Jagielka, or Jagielka, as apparently it's pronounced. <laughs> Jagielka. Well, I'm afraid it is Willy Caballero. Oh, there you go. Yeah. completely so, wrong. <laughs> Willy, Willy Caballero, 39 years old, still competing uh, for Chelsea. Phil Jagielka, 38 at Sheffield United. And Wes Morgan, 37 and still the captain of Leicester. And the last question, this is just for both of you to see if either of you can get it. Which British runner was the oldest ever Olympic champion in the men's 100 metres. He won it at the age of 32 at the 1992 Barcelona Games. Seb Coe? It wasn't Seb Coe, no. Uh, Any hmm. ideas, Josh? Uh, I'm trying British to think runner. of all British Olympic 100 metres runners. Um, well, yeah, Seb Coe's longer than 100. I didn't even listen to that bit. I'll give you a little another little not, clue not Linford Christie would it be it was Linford Christie well done Josh yeah. I was going to say he was in I'm a Celebrity a few years ago to see if that jogged any memories but yeah it was Linford Christie but uh, yeah 32 and Justin Gatlin at the age of 39 will be looking to smash that record later on this year in the Olympics Jesus I didn't realise he was 39 and it does feel like he's been around forever though yeah. been in bolt shadow for a while hasn't he but anyway, we'll move on to the second segment. The niche. A niche sport from around the world. Toby, you can give this a, the wackiness rating. I can't remember what we said it was. <laughs> uh, mountain archery. Yeah, pretty self-explanatory, this one. You've <laughs> got to shoot a target with a bow and arrow while riding the horse. Obviously. Uh, Take so, a horse. They had people, to add another element, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, as if it wasn't enough. Obviously, Probably happened a fair bit back in the old days in terms of battles. It was then revived in Mongolia in 1921. There's a governing body set up in the UK in 2007, and apparently there's professional teams then everywhere doing this. Not one I'd say that you'd want to be in the crowd for. No. So I'm going to give that, I think, a seven. To the final segment, I'll kick off our sporting highlights of the week. I went with an Olympian last week in Keely Hodgkinson on keeping to the same thing, but it was one of the Winter Olympians in Zoe Atkin, who is an 18-year-old who won the uh, half-pipe bronze medal at the World Championship. She is the younger sister of the first GB Olympic, I think it was gold medalist, actually, at the 2018 World Championship. So it looks like... GB could be slightly less of a joke in the Winter Olympics going forward. Josh, what's your sporting eye like, mate? Well, I'm going for Owen Farrell hitting a thousand points for England. Um, uh, that says a lot on the Lions tour and um, for England. And I think mine is going to be. I know we're going to talk about it more next week, but Tiger Roll coming through to win the cross country chase for a third time at the Cheltenham Festival, and that only happened today. Yeah, as you say, we'll review that next week. For now, thank you very much for joining me, boys. Thank you, Cheers. my pleasure. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Please follow us on any streaming services you use to listen to podcasts.
and follow us on social media. Twitter is at Ultimate Sport P and Instagram is The Ultimate Sports Podcast so you don't miss any future sports news or guest episodes. And we'll see you next time.